Welcome to Dominion Today with Kevin and Chantel Davis, a podcast where you will learn how to discover your calling, live your purpose, and fulfill your destiny. By listening to these episodes, you'll build the confidence you need to operate in dominion and authority so you can walk in the revelation of the victory that belongs to you in Christ Jesus. Now, here's your host, Kevin Davis. Father, I thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son your son whom you so loved so that all of us who might believe in your son that you were the one who had sent him that we believe his message we are not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation and as all of us who have believed that we will not perish but that everlasting life is ours we commemorate this day remembering the pain the suffering the sacrifice as we look upon the one whom we have pierced the one who knew no sin who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus for Jesus said there is no greater love than this than one who willingly lays down his life for his friends I thank you Lord that you were the one of whom you yourself spoke when you said that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains alone that you went to that cross willingly giving up your life in exchange for ours that your cross was planted in that soil not only as a sacrifice but as an offering bringing about our reconciliation paying the restitution recovering all and bringing about a divine around we thank you Lord for all that you have done for what has been accomplished but I thank you that the cross is not the end that the grave is not the end And so we always thank you from the perspective of hindsight, knowing that this day as terrible, as gruesome as it was, it's not the end. But it was the end of the beginning. And so we thank you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. 
Lead us and guide us unto all truth. Open your word to us. I pray for the impartation of revelation to come. Open up our eyes to see. Our ears to hear. Our hearts to receive. Revelation. But above all, your love. Your perfect love. That casts out all fear this day. Your perfect love that makes whole. Your perfect love that stirs up our faith. Knowing that with man, that which we are facing might seem impossible. But with you, all things are possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You can have your seats. Thank you so much. Brendan, you can just stay with me on the keys. Thank you so much. Good morning to each and every one of you and everyone watching by way of Facebook all around the world. I want to share something with you this morning, and we're pretty much just going to read Scripture, Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture. I just love the Word, and we say this often, that we are not interested in man's opinion because it is not man's opinion that you can stand on. In your time of trouble, of trial, of persecution. There's only one thing that we can really stand on. And that is the truth of God's word. And so this morning I want to illustrate and share something with you again on the whiteboard. But this Sunday. Sunday morning. I'm going to unpack the greatest story ever told which deals with the mystery of the ages, as well as the eternal purpose of God. That which I've shared with you was conceived and concealed in the heart of Father God in eternity past. That speaks of a time outside of time, before time even began. God already had a purpose. And this purpose was concealed in the heart of the Father, but carried out through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is a mystery that God wants us to unveil, unlock, discover, and enter into the fullness of that revelation. And so today, in essence, is both a follow-on from Palm Sunday and that which I showed you and illustrated to you on the whiteboard. But it's also just going to be a foretaste of what's going to be happening Sunday morning. So as much as you are here today, I want to already extend an invitation to all of you here and all of those watching to be here Sunday morning. Because I feel in my spirit that that which is about to be shared... Not only is it so awe-inspiring that literally your senses are just going to come alive. Not only is it so awe-inspiring, it is life-altering. That is the power of God's Word. And so I already want to urge you, I challenge you to be here Sunday morning. 
to bring someone along Sunday morning because I believe the scales are going to fall from people's eyes. And calloused hearts, hardened hearts, are going to be replaced with hearts of flesh once more. And so what I shared with you on Palm Sunday, and I'm going to just highlight this quickly, is that when God created man, He created man and placed man in the garden that He had created in the land of Eden, which is why it's called the Garden of Eden, and it was positioned at the east side of the land of Eden. And I explained to you the difference between east and west. Typically, not exclusively, but commonly, in the Word of God, moving towards the east speaks of moving away from the presence of God. Coming from the east, in other words, moving from east to west, speaks of moving towards the presence, the purpose, and the will of God. So which is why in the Garden of Eden we had the tree of life. And then there is the garden. And then there is the land of Eden. And we all remember, as I showed you from Genesis chapter 3, that there was the east gate out of which was driven Adam and Eve after the fall of man after they had sinned they had eaten from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from and so they were driven out from the west to the east also i told you when cain slew his brother abel he left and departed to the east to the land of nod so in other words he moved even further away from the presence of god and he himself identified the fact that God has rejected him. That God has cut him off from his presence. And so mankind, after sin entered, was driven out from the presence of God. They moved from west to east. I also explained to you when you look at the, at the tabernacle or the temple, is that you... It's the same orientation. But you have the outer court. I'm just quickly illustrating this to you. And then you have the inner court. And then you have the holy of holies. And then I explain to you what Jesus did coming from the Mount of Olives, entering the east gate of Jerusalem. In other words, considering what had happened, mankind was driven out. Where the first Adam had fallen, had sinned, the last Adam, Jesus, came to turn the tables on the enemy. To do a great reset or to do a great supernatural turnaround by entering that gate which was barred. Remember the, 
cherubim were placed to guard the entrance of the Garden of Eden. A flaming sword moved across to prevent man in their fallen state of entering once again into the garden that was synonymous with the presence of God. And so Christ came and he entered this east gate to Jerusalem. I also explained to you that coming into the tabernacle, there is the gate. There is also then the door that you go through to enter into the holy place. Christ is the door. He is personified as the door. And I explained to you when he hung on that cross and the soldier opened up his side, pierced his side. In essence, they opened the door. And the very last obstruction that remained in the temple or the tabernacle was the veil and I explained to you what had happened that very moment that Jesus died the son of the living God died and when he died rejected and alone what happened darkness came upon the land of Jerusalem there was a powerful earthquake that shook the foundations of that city. And it says that in the temple, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the veil that had separated the natural from the supernatural, was torn from top to bottom. And so Christ has made a way for us. Taking back what mankind had lost and a great exchange took place that day that Christ was crucified. And so go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read from verse 36. This is Jesus the night before he is crucified. This is just after he had broken bread with his disciples. And that is something that we are going to do towards the end of this morning, is we are going to be partaking of communion together. And so even those watching or listening, this is the time to get your communion elements and get that ready. For those of you here, we will serve you towards the end. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then J Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. That's the garden of Gethsemane. Sunday morning, I'm going to show you that that which happened and started in the garden. When we talk about Jesus turning the table on the enemy. How the passion of Jesus also started in a garden. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and, and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. That is so powerful. With the son of the living God, where you would speak of this from a secular level, a business level, a leadership level, where you would hear people say that a leader should never reveal 
his true state to those who actually follow him. That allegiance should never be displayed in a vulnerable position. But here the son of the living God is so vulnerable. Saying that my soul is sorrowful unto death. Jesus understands anguish. He understands stress. He understands pressure. Isn't it incredible that we today, even if we were to be here today and we are facing a stressful situation, we are never going to be able to say, Jesus, you do not understand. Jesus, you do not understand what it is like to be human. You do not understand what it's like to be on this earth surrounded by people who hate me, who reject me. We are never going to be able to utter those words because Jesus not only understands, He went through that firsthand. He knows. He went a little further and fell on His face. And He prayed saying, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. I want you to Pay particular attention to what it is we have just read. That which happens in the garden of Gethsemane. They enter the garden. And they also entered this garden. Again from the east. And then we find where Jesus leaves his disciples. He leaves the disciples. Remember, there's already one missing, Judas. He's not there. He went to betray his master and his friend, his teacher, his rabbi. And so what we find is that Jesus leaves eight of them right there at the start, the entrance of the garden. And then he takes with him three of his disciples So they go a little bit further. Then he says to them, understand, Jesus did not speak to the eight and tell them, pray and watch with me. He only spoke those words and gave that instruction to the three who were closest to him. Call it his inner circle. This is why I've said to you before, Jesus had the 72. Jesus had the 12. He had three, and then he had one, John, the one whom he loved. And so he left these three disciples there. And then it says, verse 39, he went a little further by himself, and he fell on his face. What does this remind you of? Can you see? There is the outer court where everyone could be. Then there is the inner court that is only reserved for a select few. But then there is the holy of holies, which only the high priest was allowed to enter all by himself. And so Jesus was recreating not only the Garden of Eden, not only the tabernacle, but he was showing us. That there is a price that has to be paid. But he had to pay the price alone. He asks his disciples 
to watch and pray, to intercede for Him. And what is so powerful is that in the Hebrew language, the word intercession is the word paga. It means to meet one another in the realm of the Spirit. A meeting in the Spirit realm. That is what that word means, intercession. And so what took place is Jesus was praying, but He was connected with the three disciples. In the realm of the Spirit. He could feel them praying. Until. There came that moment. That he no longer could feel. Them in the realm of the Spirit. And so he went to investigate. And what did he find? Exactly as he could feel. In the realm of the Spirit. They were fast asleep. They were no longer connected. With him in intercession. But before that happened in Luke 22. You can quickly go there with me. Luke chapter 22. The gospel of Luke is the only gospel that actually includes this reference. Verse 43. Luke twenty-two forty-three. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven. Strengthening him. Jesus was at the point of death because of the anguish that flooded his soul. And you would look upon that and you say, how is that possible for Jesus, the Son of Man, to feel that way? Because he is God, but he is limited to the capabilities of the flesh. Because he had an earthly body. And so there are limits as to the capabilities of what this flesh and blood, the human mind, is able to contain. Understand that what Jesus was already beginning to carry is that in that garden, the sins of all of mankind already started to flood upon him. And if we talk about having to carry a heavy burden, we have no comprehension of what it truly feels like to take on the sins of the world that comes upon a single man. And it says, verse 44, and being in agony. You can highlight those words or that word agony. Yes, the Son of God knows agony. He prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Isn't it interesting that the only gospel to mention the fact that Jesus sweated blood comes from the gospel of Luke. Who was Luke? He was not one of the disciples. Who was he? What was he? He was Paul's personal physician. He was a medical doctor. And he is the one to write about the fact that Jesus was under such anguish 
Medically today, they will tell you that if the body is under extreme amount of stress, what happens is the blood vessels has such pressure, the blood pressure goes beyond the roof because of the stress upon that person. And then in his forehead, the blood vessels actually burst. And out of his sweat glands, blood came forth. Why is that important to understand? And particularly where the blood came from. Understand that this was not some sort of miracle that took place. In other words, talking about transubstantiation. His sweat turning into blood. No, that's not it. He literally sweated blood. Why? So that the prophecy and that which was spoken of him might be fulfilled. But again to understand that that which happened in the garden is now being reversed. Because in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 to 19. This is after the very first messianic prophecy is proclaimed in verse 15. And I'm going to share that with you in a moment. But in Genesis 3, verse 17 to 19, God speaks these words. He says to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat fruit and food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And so what was happening is Jesus was sweating blood from his brow and letting those blood Droplets fall onto the ground that was cursed for Adam's sake. And that which came in as a result of the sin of the first Adam, the last Adam, is reversing. Is taking on the curse upon himself. You say that sounds outrageous. Again, what does the word say? We're not interested in the words of man. What does the word say? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so he, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Coming back to Matthew 26, he found his disciples sleeping and he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and he prayed saying, Oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away. The second time Jesus didn't even ask them, Can you get up? Can you pray for me? I'm vulnerable. I'm being tempted. Remember then the temptation that Jesus underwent in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. When he finally said to Satan, be gone. The Bible speaks of the fact that Satan was waiting and would come back at an opportune time. A more befitting time. What better time? Where Jesus is in the most vulnerable state ever. He was vulnerable in the wilderness because he deprived his flesh. But now he is vulnerable in a way that we, our human minds, cannot even comprehend. And so Jesus was not just dealing with the agony and the stress and the things relating to the flesh of having to be tortured and killed. He was also needing to deal with the emotional and the spiritual side of all of this. Being tempted by the devil. And a lot of times people would say, well, how is it possible that we talk about the eternal purpose of God, that which God had conceived and concealed in His Father heart before time even began, before Genesis 1 verse 1. God already had a plan. And Jesus was part and parcel of that plan right there from the beginning. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That without the Word, without Christ, all of that which was created could not have been, could not have come into being. And so we know that Jesus was there from the very beginning, even before the beginning of time. So how is it possible that Jesus, who would know His ultimate purpose and assignment, why would He dare to speak to the Father and say, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup be removed from me. Why would the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, ask this? Because He is God in the flesh. It reveals His humanity. And once more, isn't it incredible to know that we have a Savior who understands what it is like to be human, what it is like to have senses, to have intuition, to have understanding and comprehension. And then from the garden, He is taken after He was apprehended. There's so much more than I can share with you. So much more. Even considering when the Bible says that when they came to arrest Jesus, they asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And what did he say? He said, I am. I am. It's not just saying in English language like, yes, I am he. When he said, I am, that is the name of God. I am that I am. 
When Moses asked God, who will I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Just tell him, I am has sent you. He is not the great I was. He is not the great I will be. He is the eternal I am. But listen to what happened when they asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am. And what happened is the Bible says that those who came to arrest him, the moment he said, I am, they, poof, they fell. They fell to the ground. Because such power was released. When once more he revealed his true nature and identity, in the same way that he revealed himself to the Pharisees saying that before Abraham was, I am. That He is God. But He's God in the flesh. And so He went from there, and we all know the farce of a trial that took place. In the middle of the night, I mean, it was against the law. That's not how trials were supposed to happen. And so they finally locked Jesus up, awaiting now His trial before the Roman authorities, awaiting His execution. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this to us. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. But I want us to understand that when we talk about stripes, any movie about the torture of Christ plays it safe. Even that which you saw, the gruesome and brutal torture of Jesus in the film, The Passion of the Christ, is still a PG version compared to what actually took place. Because the same prophet Isaiah said that when Jesus was led to the site of his execution. He did not even resemble the form of a man. He was beaten to a pulp. Understand the, the whip that was used by the Romans. It's not this long whip that gives you a lash that cuts you. I've seen those movies where they show that was the way they were torturing Jesus with the whip. That is inaccurate, incorrect. It's Hollywood. We've got no understanding. Historically, the whip used by the Romans, it's called the flagrum or the flagellum. What that was is very similar to what we know as the cat and nine tails today. It was a short stick or handle. And attached to this handle, depending on where it was forged in the Roman Empire, could have anything from three to seven or nine tongs and attached to every one of these straps, these tongs, were pieces of metal, bone, glass, lead, whatsoever they could find. Understand what would take place in using that flagrum. Is it did not cut you, it tore you apart. 
even just withstanding 10 blows of a flagellum was enough to already expose your organs to the elements. Read the pages of history as they tell you that even people who withstood 10 blows were beaten to such an extent that you could count and see their ribs. You could see their innards. That the people would already pass out at that post. And shortly thereafter they would die. It was a means of execution of torture. Many people did not survive. The scourging to the point where they could even be sent to the site of their crucifixion. And also understand where this took place. This took place on the air or in the area that was close to the military barracks. It was the most hardened and most tyrannical, narcissistic soldiers who would get a kick out of hurting someone. Understand these soldiers came from far away. They were not born in Jerusalem. They were not born in the land of Israel. They were not from the Middle East. They would have been from Italy. They would have been from Gaul. They would have been from Frank. I mean, different parts of the Roman Empire. And so what was even mentioned to them before they would actually go and flog someone, scourge someone, is that they would basically say, you know what, this person is the reason why you're away from your family. To incite even further hatred in their hearts and in their mind. So that they could take out all their hatred and frustration upon the one who has been handed over to them to be beaten. And so this is why the Bible says later on that Jesus was so weak that he could not even carry his cross. That had not happened until that time. Because Jesus was literally beaten to an inch of his life. But if that wasn't enough, after he came and they dragged him away, you can almost imagine Jesus drifting in and out of consciousness at, at that time because of the severe loss of blood. I mean, everything has been ripped open. And it's not just his back, it's his entire body. His entire body. He wasn't just beaten on his back, it was everywhere. Literally from his feet all the way up to his head. They did not care where the flagrum fell. But then they put a crown of thorns onto his head. And again, it's not what you see on movies. The crown of thorns literally went so deep that the crown of thorns would actually go and it would press into the human skull. That's what Jesus endured. That's not even accounting for the mockery and the things that happened. Oh, the king of the worms. Oh, king, majesty. Here you are putting a robe on him, a kingly robe, mocking him. And so Sunday, I'm going to share a little bit more with you. But the Bible simply says that they took him and they scourged him. They flogged him. We don't really understand. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. And it, all, it, it, it seems so quick that we don't really understand. What took place in the same way that we read how they took Jesus to the site of his execution, they took him to the place called the skull, the skull Golgotha, and they crucified him there. And then one on his left and one on his right that's all we read 
The Bible didn't go into gruesome details. And so understand what crucifixion was like. There were many forms of crucifixion. So not all crucifixions were the same. You even had different shapes of crosses. Sometimes you literally just had a single pole and you were tied up from the top to the bottom with your hands raised above your head and you would simply tie it. Sometimes they did not even use nails. Sometimes they would only pierce their hands and not the feet. I mean, they were very creative in the way they did things. But we know that Jesus indeed was pierced with nails, his hands and his feet. And so this is why we have from the pages of history various reports of some people lasting only a few hours on the cross versus other individuals who lasted four days on a cross. Some even survived the act of crucifixion. Which is why families would sometimes go to retrieve the person from the cross where no one was looking. And this is why they actually guarded the crucifixion site. And also, where did the crucifixions take place? Not on some lonely hill up there. I know we sang those songs as children, but it's inaccurate. It's incorrect. Again, people do not understand true, accurate history. The crucifixion site was right there at the entrance of Jerusalem or coming from outside of the city as you enter the city. You had to walk through the execution site. And also a cross was not somehow high up there. The cross was just over two meters. In other words, if a, if a fully grown man were to be crucified, they would crucify you to ensure that your feet would literally just be an inch from the bottom. In other words, you would be at eye level or almost at eye level with everyone who would pass by. That was to further humiliate you. They mocked. They could sometimes even throw things at you. And also understand that when Jesus was crucified like anyone else, they were crucified completely naked. Jesus did not have the loincloth that we would see in the movies. We understand why they would do that and why they would even depict Jesus in that way. And even in the Renaissance art and even modern art to at least bestow a certain amount of dignity. But then, back in the day, they crucified you being completely, utterly, totally naked. Because they wanted to totally and utterly shame you, humiliate you, destroy you on that cross. And that's what Jesus endured. He hung there, naked, in front of everyone. John, his disciple who was there. Mary, his mother who was right there. Mary Magdalene, right there. And everyone else who would see. That is what Jesus went through. But we somehow do not see that or comprehend that. Because of how it has been depicted over the years. And so I want to close with this. And if you're part of this church, this is something I've shared with you before. But I just saw that it is so befitting to share this powerful illustration and prophetic fulfillment with you once more. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, 
This is before verse 17 to 19 we read just moments ago about the ground being cursed for Adam's sake. But in verse 15, God is speaking to the woman and then also to the serpent. And God says this in the Amplified. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That speaks of open hostility. Between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her seed. And her seed is written with a capital S. Speaking of Christ, the Messiah, who would come. Isn't it incredible that right there in that moment when God is handing out punishment because of sin, God is already giving the promise of the one who would come. Isn't it incredible? You would almost think of it from our perspective as a natural parent where your child has just missed it. Where you are busy handing down the punishment. But in the same mouth, in the same setting of you handing out the punishment, there's also coming the promise. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that just reveal the Father heart of God? I knew this was going to happen. I've already made a way for mankind. And then it says, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall fatally bruise. He shall fatally crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so that is exactly what happened. When Jesus hung on that cross, that was the enemy. That was the seed of the serpent striking the heel of Christ. But the promise was is that Christ would crush the serpent's head. And so in 1 Samuel 17, you can just make a note of it. 1 Samuel 17, verse 51. This is the story of David and Goliath. Therefore David ran, and he stood upon the Philistine. And he took his sword, and he drew it out of the sheath thereof, and he slew him. And he cut off his head therewith. That which the enemy brought to kill David. David used that which he had brought against him. You see where I'm going with this? That which the enemy meant for your destruction. God turns around for your good. And so with Goliath's own sword, David ran to him and he put his, his foot on his head. That was the sign of a king who has just conquered the king who had lost. He put his foot on Goliath's head and then he took Goliath's sword and he cut off his head. And you have certainly seen the pictures and the depictions and the, even in the, you know, sometimes you laugh at this. It's supposed to be a children's Bible, but it's all of this gruesome and horrific things. Here is David holding up the head of Goliath for all to see. But what happened with the head? The Bible says just a few verses later, verse 54, And David took the head of the Philistine. 
and brought it to Jerusalem. Why? Well, that was obviously the place where David stayed, the city of David. But why did he bring it along? And this is where theologians over the years have wondered, have asked the question, And this is even through my own research and findings and studies where I cannot come to any other conclusion but it's serving as a powerful foreshadowing of that which we read about in Genesis 3 verse 15 that he will strike your heel but you will bruise or you will crush his head. Matthew 27 verse 33. It says, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Where was Jesus crucified? Just outside of Jerusalem. Most likely, and this is what theologians have debated about for years, is that the conclusion was, is that that was also the resting place of the head of Goliath. And that place was known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so once more, the place where Jesus was led to His execution, where the enemy thought that I have and I will have the ultimate victory over that which God had planned and the purpose that God had. He was going to thwart it. He was going to come against it. He was going to destroy it with the intention to nullify the eternal purpose of God. And so when Jesus hung on that cross, the enemy indeed struck his heel. But what the devil did not understand was it was all part of the purpose of God and ultimately Jesus on that place that was meant to destroy him that becomes the place where victory is established which is why we can wear our cross that we wear as pieces of jewelry that we put up as bumper stickers and we put up for all to see which was a torturous, gruesome device of execution. But it becomes a symbol of hope, symbol of inspiration, and a symbol of victory. Because what Christ Jesus went through and secured for us. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you'd like to help Kevin and Chantel reach and impact this generation, Thank you in advance for sharing this episode with your world. If you have enjoyed Dominion today, follow Kevin and Chantel on Instagram, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, or connect with them online at dominion.org.za.